Trends in emergency department visits for self-injury have increased significantly in recent years, at least among adolescents in the United States. If an adolescent or adult presents to the emergency department for non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, when is it appropriate that they be hospitalized or admitted to an acute psychiatric inpatient program? And if NSSI is a go-to coping strategy for someone in emotional distress and they feel emotionally distressed while in an inpatient setting, what are they to do with their urge to self-injure? How realistic is it to expect no self-injury to occur while in the hospital in a setting specifically designed to keep people safe? When and how should hospital staff intervene if someone self-injures while they are in an inpatient hospital program? To answer these questions and to talk about how we can respect the autonomy of someone who self-injures while also keeping them safe in an inpatient setting and respond with compassion and empathy, I am joined today from Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago by Dr. Jason Washburn. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or ISSS, or simply IISSS. I remember attending my first IISSS conference in Vancouver, Canada, and quietly sitting in on the business meeting held at the conclusion of the conference. When it came time for the IISSS financial update, I was impressed by the detailed knowledge and confidence of the treasurer. I was equally impressed with how his voice traveled so well. Joking aside, the IISSS treasurer, Dr. Jason Washburn, is board certified in clinical child and adolescent psychology and is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences in the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. He's the director of graduate studies for the master's and PhD programs in clinical psychology and received his PhD in clinical psychology from DePaul University, completed his clinical internship at the University of Washington School of Medicine, a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Michigan Medical School, and was a Robert Wood Johnson Research scholar at Northwestern. He's also a consultant with the Center for Childhood Resilience at Lurie Children's Hospital in Amida Behavioral Health. His interests include non-suicidal self-injury, suicide, and other high-risk behaviors, and implementation of science-based practices and education and training in clinical psychology. Welcome, Dr. Washburn. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Dr. Westers. It's actually uh, really a delight to be a part of the podcast series and to continue to contribute to IISSS. How did you become interested in researching and treating self-injury to begin with? You know, that's a great question. (laughs) And thinking about my experiences with non-suicidal self-injury through my training, it really kind of happened in a accidental way, I would say. I initially was interested in in my graduate school days and even through my postdoc years, more so in juvenile delinquency and, and violent behavior, aggressive behavior, particularly in children and adolescents. That was a big focus of my interest. And during uh, my internship, my clinical internship at the University of uh, Washington School of Medicine. As part of my interest in juvenile delinquency, I worked in a, what I would fondly refer to as a kiddie prison, a, you know, a juvenile camp for kids that had been incarcerated and doing a uh, consultation with some of the directors of that facility. We ran across two of their, we would I guess we'd call them inmates if they were adults that had special units built just for them. I still remember to this day, the one of the directors telling me, 
idea that each of the units cost $100,000 to build. One of the kids had it built for him because he would tear off every other single door <laughs> that they had in the facility. They even put him in one of the most secure buildings that they had. And that resulted in, uh, he kicked that one off and, and the door went flying. So they had to build one specifically to contain him. And sadly, that kid was actually in there for stealing gum which is just a sad case of how our system works yeah. uh, and things that just escalated from there. But the other kid that they built it for, I remember just being fascinated because this kid was very calm, very cooperative. And as he was in his unit, again, individualized unit, cell built just for him, he was only allowed to be in his underwear. And his body was covered from head to toe with the, you know, the scars that came from his non-suicidal self-injury. So that was really my first introduction to non-suicidal self-injury. I didn't fully understand it. What I did understand was that this was somebody who was highly motivated to keep injuring. So that was clear because they could not contain him in all the other cells. And, you know, within the first 24 hours of being in his new cell, he had figured out a way to self-injure. And so that really made an impression on me. Then when I went to my first postdoctoral fellowship at uh, University of Michigan Medical School, I worked with uh, Cheryl King, who has done a lot of work in youth suicide prevention. So even though my interest was still in juvenile delinquency, I was starting to get exposure to suicide prevention and understanding and intervening with suicide. And so that was an experience I had, just like with the experience in the kitty prison, got tucked into the back of my mind. And then when I went back to Chicago to do my second postdoc at Northwestern, focusing finally back on juvenile delinquency, I then got an opportunity to take a position while still staying at Northwestern at what was then called Alexian Brothers Behavioral Health Hospital, now Amita Health. I remember as getting my tour of that facility, we went through a unit that was a non-suicidal self-injury unit, both inpatient as well as a partial hospitalization intensive outpatient program. When the CEO was giving me the tour and introducing me to all the different units, I remember when she said, and this is our self-injury unit, I remember saying, you mean for borderline personality disorder, right? Because that was my understanding. She actually stopped and goes, no, it's mostly children and adolescents, right? It's mostly adolescents. I was like, really? <laughs> I had come from University of Washington. I'd been trained for my internship in dialectical behavior therapy. I understand non-suicidal self-injury through the lens of borderline personality disorder. And I was quite clueless about it outside of that and shocked that this many adolescents engaged in it, that there was an entire inpatient partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient program. And then of course, I remembered, I remembered that kid that had that special unit built for him. As you know, any good academic does, I, I immediately went home and got on and did a lit search and started to see, this was back in 2006, who does this stuff? Who knows anything about this? What's out there? And that's when I ran across all the, you know, the big pioneers in non-suicidal self-injury, many of whom I have come to know and consider to be my close colleagues now. So that's really how I got into it and ultimately stumbled upon IFSS and I think was invited to their second IFSS conference at Harvard with Matt Knock and the rest is history. That's great. I was actually going to ask you about your work in inpatient settings, and you kind of already explained some of that because that's formative in how you became interested in non-suicidal self-injury. What is your work now with Amita Health in Alexian Brothers, or formerly Alexian Brothers? 
Yeah, so I'm still a consultant with them. My primary appointment, uh, you know, even when I was part-time at Amita Health or Alexian Brothers, has been at Northwestern University in the Feinberg School of Medicine. In 2018, I did formally leave my contract that I had with Amita Health, but stayed on as a consultant. So I still do work with them and still provide a lot of trainings and consultation as needed as it relates predominantly to non-suicidal self-injury and suicide. That's great. I don't know if I ever told you this, but when I was in graduate school, I had my eye on the internship there at Alexian Brothers. I did not know that. My application got lost. (laughs) So no, are you serious? Yeah, I don't know what happened. And I actually called up there and yeah, I was obviously devastated, but I think things turned out okay after all. That was the one internship I wanted and I applied to a bunch and that was the one that didn't get it. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You would have been perfect. (laughs) Well, thank you. Well, considering your work on these acute inpatient settings and the outcome research that you've done, a lot of people, adults and young people, adolescents, are going to the emergency departments at significantly increased rates for non-suicidal self-injury when they don't have suicidal thoughts necessarily. And sometimes they do, but they might go because their school counselor or the school nurse or the school staff has sent them or their parents have sent them or even their therapist. When do you think it's appropriate for someone who engages in NSS to be admitted to an acute psychiatric inpatient program? Can NSSI alone merit admission or must there also be suicidal thoughts? Yeah, that's a great, great question. You know, what we would argue is that non-suicidal self-injury in many cases can be handled on an outpatient basis. There are definitely times when non-suicidal self-injury needs to be the primary target of outpatient treatment and should be the primary focus and psychotherapy. And certainly there's no medication for non-suicidal self-injury, but there certainly are medications that can help with a lot of the conditions that are associated with non-suicidal self-injury. There are times, however, where people will need additional care beyond traditional, you know, once a week psychotherapy. And this is where acute care does come in. And we do think that there are several indicators that would suggest that somebody needs a higher level of care than you know, once a week psychotherapy or monthly medication evaluation. And there are several indicators that will suggest that somebody's non-suicidal self-injury is of a level that could become quite risky. And that could be really looking at the frequency and the severity of the non-suicidal self-injury, the patient's preoccupation with their non-suicidal self-injury. So if they're having a hard time not thinking about it constantly, their urges to self-injure are pretty high and difficult to control. Obviously, when somebody self-injures in a way that could put them at risk, they're self-injuring in a way that might, to some people, look like a suicide attempt. Even for them, they see it as not being a suicide attempt, but the risk level is at a point where we are concerned. There also are a lot of additional things that come along with non-suicidal self-injury that also increase the likelihood of somebody going into an acute level of care, be it inpatient or partial hospitalization or intensive outpatient. And let me just take a moment to explain the differences between those three before I kind of get into that, because I realize I'm probably using some psychobabble jargon that some people might not be aware of. But when we're talking about inpatient care, that's going to be your highest level of care that somebody is going to need. And typically inpatient care is 24-7 on a unit in a hospital where you're going to be monitored 
every 15 minutes by a staff member on that unit, even while you're sleeping. Every 15 minutes is kind of your common denominator on, on an inpatient unit. Sometimes it might be more than that. Sometimes you may be monitored 24-7 because of your risk level. And so an inpatient level of care is when you are at the kind of highest state of need from a psychiatric perspective. And typically that's defined as hurting self or others, right? To the point where loss of life is a concern. And again, that can be a direct loss of life, fear for a direct loss of life, such as a suicide attempt. It could also be a non-suicidal self-injury that is placing somebody at risk as well. So even though somebody doesn't necessarily want to die from their non-suicidal self-injury, the severity or the frequency or the duration of their self-injury is increasing concern for your safety. So that would be an inpatient level. Again, with that, you're going to see lengths of stay anywhere between, I've, I've seen them as short as three days, all the way up to two weeks. And so you're generally going to be a fairly short period of time on the inpatient unit. It's entirely meant for behavioral stabilization. So some people might go in there to get stabilized enough so that they can then go to a lower level of care. Some people go on there to get stabilized and then there's changes done to their medication. Sometimes people will also stay on an inpatient unit if they're getting more intensive interventional treatments, you know, such as electroconvulsive therapy, transcranial stimulation, things like that. So that's typically what you're seeing at the inpatient level of care. The partial hospitalization, often referred to as a day treatment or step-down program, that's going to be about six hours a day. The actual number of hours are, you know, somewhat different by program and state and so on. But about six hours a day is going to be your partial hospitalization, a lot of group therapy. At the end of the day, though, you go home and so you sleep at home, but you're coming to that partial hospitalization program, usually again in a hospital, but not always working in groups and doing some possibly some individual work, you know, meeting with a psychiatrist for sure at some level. And that's going to be typically anywhere between 10 days to sometimes a month. Sometimes I've even seen longer for partial hospitalization. Intensive outpatient would be the step down from there. So that's going to be more around four hours a day. And that again, might be every day, it might be every other day, there's a lot of flexibility and variation, again, across facilities and across individuals and so on. So that's what I mean when I refer to acute level care. And again, when somebody is engaging in non-suicidal self-injury and it's getting to a point where it's hard to manage in an outpatient basis, then people would start to look towards acute care. Intensive outpatient partial hospitalization, there doesn't have to be necessarily a risk of loss of life. But there is often a concern that the NSSI has escalated to the point where we're not seeing significant improvements in traditional outpatient care, or that there's a level of dangerousness that's involved Again, the frequency has increased, the duration, the severity of the type of injury, for example, has gotten to a point where there's concern. The other area of concern, obviously, is then all of the other associated conditions that people have when they engage in non-suicidal self-injury. That could be depression, it could be anxiety, it could be behavioral disorders, it could be an eating disorder. So all of those other kinds of conditions that are associated with non-suicidal self-injury may also be a reason why people would end up, along with their non-suicidal self-injury, at a more acute level of care. So again, you know, when we're looking at inpatient level, that highest level, it might not be a suicide attempt, but there's going to be concern for somebody's health and safety that generally the understanding is that it can't be managed safely in an outpatient level.
Thank you for the clarification for each of those. And I know even in my work, I will tell families that if I need to see them twice a week, I will. And I and I do. But when it goes to three times a week, that to me suggests a higher level of care is needed, likely an intensive outpatient or probably an inpatient hospitalization. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think a lot of our conversation probably applies to inpatient, partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient. So just thinking more specifically about inpatient, by nature, those programs like you had mentioned, aim to keep people safe, safe from harming themselves, safe from harming other people. However, we do know that people typically self-injure to cope with really difficult emotions or situations. And those who engage in non-suicidal self-injury, they may feel the urge to self-injure while they're in those programs, while they're inpatient. How realistic is it for us and for inpatient psychiatric hospitalization programs to expect no self-injury to occur at all while they're in the hospital or in one of these programs? Yeah, Dr. Westers, that's a, such an important question. And I would also say a very controversial answer. And it's controversial because the nature of non-suicidal self-injury to those that don't self-injure can be very confusing. As anybody who engages in non-suicidal self-injury knows that while there are multiple reasons why people engage in non-suicidal self-injury, ultimately it's to really improve how they're feeling in that moment. That's a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times what's going on in that moment. It's to either you know decrease a negative feeling or to bring on a positive feeling at, the, at a very basic level. And like you said, if that's your only coping mechanism or if that's the primary way that you deal with distress or frankly, don't deal with it by trying to avoid it, if that's your primary way to manage through distress, to manage through suicidal thoughts, urges to engage in suicidal behavior. There's a good number of people who engage in non-suicidal self-injury to stay alive. And again, for people that don't understand non-suicidal self-injury, who haven't lived it, who don't study it, that doesn't make any sense. You know, why would I hurt myself to feel better? But for those that do engage in non-suicidal self-injury, it makes perfect sense, right? And so in that sense, then, I have a lot of concerns with inpatient programs or other programs that have a quote-unquote zero-tolerance policy around self-injury. But it's a very, very challenging thing because an inpatient unit is designed to keep people safe. It's designed to prevent people from hurting themselves or hurting others. And so in that case, what we tend to recommend is that inpatient units do not apply a zero tolerance policy for non-suicidal self-injury. On the other hand, there is no inpatient unit in the world that's going to you know, hand out implements or allow people to self-injure freely on a unit because that could result in true danger to oneself and potential loss of life. So there has to be some sort of balance between understanding that until people can develop alternative methods of dealing with their distress, of dealing with their intense emotions, that there still might be some engagement in what I would refer to as more low-level non-suicidal self-injury. These more mild, even moderate levels of non-suicidal self-injury are generally not life-threatening. Our data show that I think 88% to 88 to 89% of non-suicidal self-injuries at the acute level, right, when people make it to acute level treatment, the week or so preceding their admission, 89% of those non-suicidal self-injuries are at the mild to moderate level. Mild being requiring absolutely no medical care at all, moderate being needing a bandage or needing to be looked at, but nothing real significant, something that could be looked at by someone who's not a medical professional, right? Like a parent or somebody like that. Severe is what we would call needing medical intervention. 
right? Again, only about 11% of our patients at the acute care level will experience in the week prior to admission a serious non-suicidal self-injury. So in that case, what we don't want to do is over-police people on the inpatient unit that engage in non-suicidal self-injury because that could take away their only coping mechanism. And if that coping mechanism is used to prevent suicidal thoughts and suicidal behaviors, until an alternative can be provided, we might actually be increasing risk by removing that coping mechanism. And again, that's controversial because an inpatient unit, that's the you know antithesis of what an inpatient unit is designed to do, which is to keep people safe. And so working with patients on the inpatient unit to help them to figure out what those alternatives might be, or if they are going to engage, how are they going to engage? You know, So using those more mild methods and helping them to collaborate collaborate with staff on the unit and with the clinicians on the unit to manage significant urges to engage in non-suicidal self-injury, right? To the point where when they get to discharge, that they are actively managing those rather than moving towards non-suicidal self-injury. So it sounds like it's not always realistic to expect someone to not self-injure at all while they're on an inpatient program, if that's their go-to coping strategy. It just depends on level of severity that might be the concern in that moment. How should hospital staff respond and intervene when someone does self-injure while they're in the hospital, while they're on an inpatient unit? What are some helpful guidelines for hospital staff in these cases? Yeah, so the, the best thing that we can propose is two things. The first is we want to develop a collaborative relationship with our patients to the best that we can. What we like to do to start is to identify what the functions of the behavior are. And if we could identify, for instance, that there is a suicidal prevention function to this, then what we want to do is immediately develop suicide prevention plans so that we can put into place processes that can help the patient to immediately go to alternative means other than non-suicidal self-injury, right? So we can start to immediately start to work on those. So understanding the function and addressing the need, the really real and important need that the patients have, that that people have to regulate themselves, that non-suicidal self-injury is providing we want to be able to start working on those alternatives. So that's number one. So we want to do good assessment. We want to understand those functions to start with. We then want to work on developing a collaborative relationship between the patient and the staff. And forgive me for using the word patient. I I work in a hospital system. That's how we um, converse. And so I try to use people because patients are people, but forgive me when I lean off into that. But when we're working with somebody, we want to help to understand how they use non-suicidal self-injury, use motivational enhancement and relationship development skills to develop that collaborative relationship so that we can start to work with them on thinking about adding alternatives to their non-suicidal self-injury. And as part of that, we want them to become experts of themselves in the sense that they start to monitor their own behavior. They start to monitor their own urges. They start to let us know when their distress level is getting high and they're feeling like engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. That can help us to work towards then building in those alternative skills. So there's a lot of kind of prep work that comes into this ahead of time that really helps to then manage when an actual injury occurs. So that way, if an injury occurs, somebody can let us know. There's no 
fear in letting us know. There's no shame in letting us know. They're not going to be worried that we're, let's say we're in a partial environment that we're going to immediately send them up to inpatient. That's not going to happen unless it's of a life-threatening or has gotten to the point where we're afraid of possible loss of life, right? And again, so with what we're doing with a patient on an acute care level is really working with them to better understand themselves, right? That's ultimately what it boils down to. And then if they engage in a non-suicidal self-injury, we are working on medically dealing with that non-suicidal self-injury. That's the first thing we wanna do. Make sure the person gets medical treatment. And I'm being very clear there, medical treatment. They need to be treated by a nurse. They need to be treated by a physician. And that treatment is entirely focused on the injury. There's no judgment. There's no discussion of the non-suicidal self-injury component of it. None of that. So we're really working at that level on just treating the injury as if it is any other injury. We don't want to draw extra attention to it. We don't want it to be a big focus. We don't want to have everybody in the program or on the unit start talking about it. It's a matter of fact assurance that the person is safe and then making sure that we treat the injury and that's it. After the injury is treated, then there can be a discussion of looking to see what happened, looking to see what led up to what. In dialectical behavior therapy, for example, doing a really good chain analysis to see how did that happen? What were the antecedents? What were the, the situation, the triggers that might have had led to the urge to engage in non-suicidal self-injury? What was happening while that urge was increasing? You know, What was the level of awareness? And uh, what were the behaviors that people were engaged in? What were the physical sensations that they were experiencing, the thoughts that they were having? Helping to really dissect what led up to the self-injury so that we can then identify potential opportunities and target points for the future. Oh, there's an opportunity. That's something at that point right there Here's an alternative, a behavior that you could have done. Here's an alternative. Here's a way you could have challenged that thought. Here's a way you could have dealt with that physical sensation. Here's a way you could have informed us about your behavioral desire, right? The response that you wanted to engage in. We could have helped you with a different one. Let's try that next time. Let's develop a plan. So when you start to get to this level, you do X, Y, and Z rather than A, B, and C. And so that's the way that we recommend people deal with it at the acute level of care. The injury is an injury. You treat it as you would treat any other injury. The engagement in non-suicidal self-injury, it's just like any other emotion-driven behavior. You deal with it like any other emotion-driven behavior. But again, in order to do all of that, you have to lay the foundation. You have to understand the function. You have to understand what this does for the individual and understand how frequently they're experiencing urges, how often they're engaging in this behavior. So you have to collect all that information ahead of time so you can then develop plans that are solid going forward for when it happens, because it's going to happen again. We have data in our acute care level, uh, partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient in particular, that's very clear that people, even when they're in intensive level of treatment, like an acute care facility, they're going to still engage in non-suicidal self-injury. That's expected. So we need to expect that that's going to happen. And we need to also work with our patients to help them to understand that there are alternatives, there are other ways, and that these alternatives might have longer-term benefits over engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. These are such important points. I'm just thinking about that matter-of-fact approach for treating the behavior and also recognizing that, yeah, if this is a coping strategy, even on inpatient or higher levels of care, this is likely to occur. Being able to just 
treat it as an emotionally driven behavior as far as looking at the function of the behavior, what led up to it, the chain analysis like you had mentioned, but also treating it medically without judgment. And I think that matter of fact is so important, not trying to necessarily process it while taking care of the wound, but being able to just take care of the wound just like any other wound if someone had fallen by accident or gotten hurt by accident. And I'm thinking about this in terms of age group of different programs. So we have adult programs, we have child adolescent programs. These behaviors occur in these settings at times. And sometimes staff will want to just jump in, intervene, prevent the person from self-injuring because there's that responsibility, I think, of these staff members that this is supposed to be a safe setting and the parents, if they're a child or adolescent patient in these settings, are going to hold us accountable and be mad that we allow this to happen on our watch. So I'm wondering what recommendations you might give when parents expect the hospital to keep their child safe, but their child can still find ways to self-injure, even in the strictest of environments, of course. So parents are understandably going to be upset with hospital staff if they don't prevent that from happening. In this kind of example, what should hospital staff know? And then what should parents know? Yeah, so it's a great question. I think we need to define what we mean by keeping our child safe, right? Or keeping the patient safe. And that is the key point. There is no clinician in the world that is going to sit by while somebody engages in a life-threatening behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And that should never be an expectation. So it should always be expected that a clinician is going to intervene if a patient's life is at risk, right? And that is the message that we want to give medical staff. That's the message we want to give psychiatric staff. And that's the message we want to give parents. Is there is no way we will just, you know, sit by while somebody's life is threatened. So we will keep somebody safe at that level for sure. Non-suicidal self-injury most of the time is not life-threatening. And so while we will do our best to prevent non-suicidal self-injury that might be highly problematic, right? So if somebody starts self-injuring in a spot that could have uh, long-term implications for the patient, there might be a greater need to intervene there, right? So there's shades of gray here with what we're talking about. But by and large, most non-suicidal self-injury is in the mild to moderate level and is not actually putting a patient's safety at risk. So that is the key part. And that's what medical staff need to understand, psychiatric staff need to understand, and parents need to understand. And that actually by intervening, by stopping every single instance of non-suicidal self-injury, because non-suicidal self-injury might be used as a primary coping strategy, might be used to prevent suicidal behavior, we might be increasing risk to safety and to life. If we intervene every time, we might actually then be increasing the likelihood that someone's going to really hurt themselves badly. The other concern with that is if patients feel like they need to hide, what they will sometimes do is go to levels that actually increase risk. For instance, and we see this a lot with adolescents, for example, where once the parent becomes aware of non-suicidal self-injury, as any parent that doesn't know much about non-suicidal self-injury would likely do, they try to stop every instance of it. And what that often leads adolescents to do is to find more discreet ways to non-suicidal self-injury. So they might go to parts of the body that they can hide easier. They can hide the scars. They can hide the injuries or the wounds. And that can often lead to self-injury in more vulnerable parts of the body that can lead to potential significant problems from a health and safety perspective. So we don't want patients to hide necessarily. We don't want them to lie to us. We don't want them to feel like we are taking away every single coping mechanism that they have. There has to be an understanding that yes, safety will be maintained, but 
the vast majority of non-suicidal self-injuries do not threaten safety. And so that needs to be understood by the staff and that's psychiatric and medical staff. And it also needs to be understood by parents. So a significant amount of psychoeducation is needed for parents when their child is being hospitalized for non-suicidal self-injury. And same for outpatient care, by the way. That level of psychoeducation needs to also include an understanding of the function of non-suicidal self-injury, as well as what we mean by making sure that their child is safe and what threats might be posed by a child that has their primary coping mechanism taken away. And I hear not only on inpatient programs, but also parent-child relationships, there becomes a power struggle, really. And then rather than focusing on redirecting the behavior to something healthy or learning a healthier coping strategy, the focus becomes on letting me have my independence, my autonomy. Don't tell me what I can and cannot do. This is my body, which leads me to my next question. (laughs) Some people who are admitted to psychiatric inpatient programs may feel that they've lost all autonomy or the ability to make decisions for themselves. And we know particularly with adolescents, that is very important, and adults is very important. Well, anyone really. But how can hospital staff, including therapists on inpatient units, respect patient autonomy while also keeping them safe and avoiding these types of power struggles? It's not easy, right? By its very nature, an inpatient unit, particularly for children and adolescents, is not going to feel voluntary. And even for adults that voluntarily go on the unit, oftentimes they go voluntarily, but they often feel they had no choice, right? (laughs) And then, of course, we do have people who are involuntary, who are court mandated, or who, through medical necessity, have been put on an inpatient unit against their will. And so the question of that autonomy becomes a very complex question. I do believe that there is a way to still allow a level of autonomy on an inpatient unit. But we also have to acknowledge that true autonomy, you know, 100% autonomy has been removed when you're on an inpatient unit. And so I think there's a there's a level of honesty that we just have to have about that. With children and adolescents, they often don't have autonomy to begin with. As they start to develop into adolescence, they're struggling for more and more autonomy. And that's where, again, those power struggles can come into play. And so the key aspect, again, with that is collaboration. Utilizing motivational enhancement, motivational interviewing approaches to help the child, adolescent, or even adult patient to really understand the long-term implications of their non-suicidal self-injury. What are the ways it works for them? What are the ways it doesn't work for them? Working to increase consideration of change and thinking about doing things different. And we can do that without necessarily taking away NSSI right to begin with, right? Ultimately, our goal certainly is for people not to engage in non-suicidal self-injury. Reasons why are the long-term health risks, the fact that when you do it over time, you often have some sort of tolerance that builds up, this level of needing to do more of it. And we've seen this time and time again with people that are engaged in non-suicidal self-injury for many, many years, for example, that the severity increases, the frequency increases, the duration increases. So in that case, what we really want to do is work with our patients to help them to consider alternatives and to, to be collaborative with them around this. We also have to just be upfront with them that we have to make sure that they are safe and define for them what safety means. We're not going to restrict you in all ways, but in some ways we are. If you are going to self-injure in a way that puts your life at risk, if you're going to be self-injuring in front of others, these are things that we can't allow because it's going to put others at risk or it's going to be putting yourself at risk of loss of life or significant injury. And so, you know, some things need to be explained and where are the limits? But to say, we also though want to work with you. We also want to collaborate with you and we want to work with you towards improving your overall health. 
And how can we do that? How can we understand how this behavior works for you? And what can we do to respect as much as possible your choices and your autonomy while also understanding that we have to think about your long-term health, even if in that moment, you're only concerned about your immediate health, right? You're only concerned about your immediate desire to get rid of an emotion or to change an emotional experience. We also have to think about your long-term health. And we're going to work with you on that. And we want you to understand it, but it has to be a collaborative relationship. That's not always feasible, right? Sometimes, you know, again, when people are brought in against their will to an inpatient unit, sometimes the best we can do is keep them safe and make sure that they can then move on to the next level of care. And sometimes they are just not wanting to collaborate with us. And I work on an inpatient unit now, um, and I can tell you there's been several situations where that's occurred. But the vast majority of patients that I work with are willing to collaborate. They're willing to understand that this works at some level, the non-suicidal self-injury works at some level, but in other levels, it doesn't. Do they want to see themselves doing this five years from now? And what is it going to look like five years from now if they don't do something different right now? And so really working with them to develop the motivation and helping them to develop those collaborative relationships with us are really absolutely key. I like the collaboration I was going to say that's absolutely key because providing that or having that conversation at the outset, listen, we know this isn't going to be, you're not going to have full autonomy. You're not going to have full independence. And that's, that's unfortunate. We know that feels pretty intrusive, but we're still going to respect you as a human being. But then I think some programs may lack that empathy. I'm thinking about provider stigma, how a lot of times people that work in mental health, not just an inpatient, but also an outpatient, we have to be careful that we're not stigmatizing the behaviors or mental health conditions of those that we meet with or treat because it's such a thing. And I've heard many stories, as I'm sure you have, of individuals sharing horrible experiences that they've had on inpatient programs because they were treated as less than human or they were just not they didn't have that empathy. And you just shared a lot of strategies of how we might build that, having that collaborative conversation, that open, honest discussion up front. It's like, hey, this is what's going to happen. And it's not going to be necessarily, you don't have all your freedoms right now. We get that. But to keep you safe and to work on this is going to be important. Is there any other ways that we can help hospital staff that might be listening to be able to foster and maintain empathy for those who self-injure? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are Fortunately, lots of recovery groups out there that have testimonials that I think can be helpful to get psychiatric and medical staff to understand what it's like for somebody who engages in non-suicidal self-injury, why they engage in non-suicidal self-injury. I would say teaching the functional model of non-suicidal self-injury is absolutely critical to developing that. Most of the people, and I've, I've, I've trained thousands of people from medical and psychiatric staff to school personnel, teachers all the way to counselors and school psychologists. And of all the all the things that I do, I would say the functional model is probably the most important for addressing stigma. Uh, it answers that question as to why would somebody do this, right? Oh, here's why, right? We have data to show you why. And we have patient testimonial that explains why and what's the perspective. And we have physiological evidence from labs, <laughs> lab data uh, or lab studies that show how it works, right? How in that moment, non-suicidal self-injury can be very effective for changing someone's emotional state. So I find that that is a very, very convincing way to get medical staff and psychiatric staff to really understand, oh, okay, this is a behavior just like other behaviors, right? People engage in this because it has a purpose. It has a meaning. It's not something that is confusing once you understand it. And I think the stigma starts to go away 
once people start to understand. I think that's a huge piece of it. You know, another piece of it too is really the movement towards patient-first language and really understand, or person-first language, I say patient-first language, to really understand the patient as a person. So one of my lifelong missions, if I can retire at some point having accomplished this, it would be outstanding. But one of my lifelong missions is to get rid of the term, for instance, oh, that's a borderline, right? Or the phrase, I guess. I cringe every time I hear that. And I also say something every time I hear that. I always say to somebody, no, 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 that's somebody who suffers from borderline personality disorder. It is not a borderline person, right? Mm -hmm. It is a person who has borderline personality disorder. So people first and then these are people who have conditions. And these conditions often cause significant distress for them. So helping somebody to see it that way, helping somebody to see the distress, to see how an individual feels as if they have no other option, feels as if this is the only thing that works for them, and to provide the data to show how it does work in the moment, doesn't work long term, but in the moment, how it can work, that can be huge in getting people to see, oh, now I get it. Now I understand what's going on here. This person is really no different than any other patient I have in terms of their desire, well, and any other human that I know of, their desire to limit negative emotion experiences, right? Their desire to not feel bad. No human wants to feel bad. <laughs> and if they do, there's a reason why. <laughs> so helping to understand that reason helping to humanize somebody who engages in non-suicidal self-injury, I have found that that does wonders in terms of changing people's approach and getting them to, uh, uh, to have the empathy and to understand that, that you know, this, is, this is a disorder just like any other disorder. Humanizing them, I, I really appreciate that. And even the focus on the functional assessment, like what is the function, the reason that this behavior is happening? Because I think a lot of staff may personalize it or take it personally and think that, well, they're just trying to do this to get attention or to yeah. make my job harder. And there's that lack of empathy, that lack of humanizing yeah. them. And so being able to break it down is like, no, this is serving a function. Let's break it down, figure out what's going on. And then maybe we can either avoid the trigger or direct them to help or help them cope in the moment when they are experiencing a triggering moment. Yeah, absolutely. Now, another concern is this concept of contagion that people will use. I know that stems from medical terminology. We don't technically use that as much anymore. But the social reinforcement, let's say, of self-injury on inpatient programs where one might self-injure, then someone else who struggles with self-injury may self-injure. I know there's some research to support that. What are some things that staff can do to manage and decrease the likelihood of social reinforcement of the behavior? Yeah, absolutely. I think the research on this supports our clinical experience on this, where we do see that patients can influence each other. And sometimes, for instance, patients will engage in competitions. We often use the phrase of telling war stories. So we prevent that. And we have strict rules on both the inpatient partial hospitalization intensive outpatient programs in terms of how one discusses non-suicidal self-injury. So using formal phrases like I self-injured or I engaged in non-suicidal self-injury using that terminology rather than saying what they did. So we never talk about what 
one actually did in any sort of group setting. It's not allowed. We do not share stories of what we have done in the past. We do not talk about what's the worst thing we've ever done. Because what that can do is it can increase, and again, particularly among adolescents, but we see this in adults as well, it can increase or create a kind of a, a really challenging environment where you have competition. You know, who's going to be the worst non-suicidal self-injurer? Who engages in the most dangerous behavior? And that obviously is the last thing that we want. So we have demonstrated that we can contain this, clinically demonstrated. I don't have any uh, specific proof for you other than to say that we have seen over the course of our partial hospitalization intensive outpatient programs decreases in non-suicidal self-injury. So that's our evidence to suggest that it can be contained. So these rules have to be very clear to everyone. They have the rationale behind them have to be explained and they have to be enforced, right? They have to be utilized. And again, with the goal that we're all here to get better. We're all here to learn alternatives. We're all here to figure out how to be less miserable. And we're only going to do that if we don't make the situation worse. And by sharing these things, we make the situation worse. And we might put our friends at risk, the people who are in treatment with us, we might be putting them at risk if we share this information. So we want to use, again, more specific terms. Usually I, I recommend a program or a unit have one term that everybody uses, whatever that term is going to be. But you educate everybody at the start of the program. This is the term you use. With most of our acute care programs, the first thing that you're doing the day is ask, have you engaged in, in non-suicidal self-injury? Because we want to know so that we can make sure that they're safe. We can get their wound looked at, see if there's any, any injury that needs to be taken care of, and then get them back to group. But that's predominantly why we do it. And so right from the beginning, everybody is getting educated in terms of that process. And you develop a culture and a norm that this is how we talk about it and that we don't share stories about it. And when somebody starts to share a story, when we stop them from doing so, we explain the rationale for it. We don't get judgy. We don't get irritated. We don't get upset. We just explain, oh, yeah, so we don't do that here. And this is why. And we also try to develop that norm so that when patients are, you know, in, in maybe more alone parts of the unit, that they're not then whispering and sharing those stories, right? So that they understand that if they're going to help each other, they have to help each other and that this does not help. This only makes things worse. We have found, again, that this is uh, something that people get very concerned about, and I think they should be concerned about. Mm -hmm. But if you manage it through these approaches, it's really very much a doable thing. You can really handle these potential spreads, the social reinforcement of these things, I think, quite well. One final piece on that. You also have to manage it outside of the specific program and outside of the specific unit. And so that means handling it at, at the family level, handling it at the friendship level as well. And so we really encourage families to be involved, to get that psychoeducation, to develop some understanding, a shared understanding about how they're going to talk about this, how they're going to react to non-suicidal self-injury, and to share that with any friends that also may be aware of the non-suicidal self-injury so that they all know how to avoid accidentally reinforcing the behavior. So when somebody engages in non-suicidal self-injury outside of the hospital context, the family doesn't suddenly all bring attention to the patient. They're not all rushing to help. They're instead dealing matter-of-factly with the wound, you know, informing their outpatient provider, letting them know, and engaging in any sort of safety planning and engaging in any sort of other therapeutic processes that they would be doing anyways, so that it becomes something that isn't socially reinforced. Even though the vast, vast majority of people who engage in non-suicidal self-injury do not do it 
to get attention. We have data to support that. So every time I talk to teachers, for example, <laughs> I always ask, why do people do this? They're for attention. And, <laughs> and again, that's what most parents think as well, yeah. right? And it makes sense, right? Yeah. And it doesn't mean there isn't a component of that, but that is not the primary driver. The primary driver is almost always going to be things like regulating one's affect, preventing suicide, expressing you know hatred towards myself, those kinds of things. Sometimes maybe also because when I do this, people respond in a certain way. So we want to limit any sort of potential contribution of social reinforcers. The culture of shift that you've created at the hospital setting, that's pretty incredible because I don't know a whole lot of hospitals that have dealt so well with that kind of cultural shift. Not that I'm well-versed in all the inpatient programs here or around the world, but that sounds like a really incredible thing that you've yeah, that you've done. Just a little side note on that. One of the reasons I think is because we're one of the few hospitals or Alexian Brothers was one of the few hospitals to have an inpatient unit specifically for non-suicidal self-injury. Now it was also shared with eating disorders and the co-occurrence between those two is well known. But because of that, because there were dedicated people to non-suicidal self-injury, it really had a permeating effect across the entire hospital system. Not only the behavioral health, but also the larger medical unit or medical system. It, it took a concerted effort like that's not something that just organically happens. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we've noticed as it relates to that is within the larger Chicagoland area, and I think this is a good thing, at some level, we almost put ourselves out of business at the acute care level because we had seen over the 15 years of these programs, the level or the number of people being referred for non-suicidal self-injury was dropping. And that wasn't because non-suicidal self-injury was disappearing. It was because we were getting better and better at training the community to not overreact to this. So we weren't getting your non-suicidal self-injury patient who injured once <laughs> and everybody freaked out, thought it was a suicide attempt and admitted them. We weren't getting those anymore because people were starting to realize how to manage this in the outpatient level. And again, I see that as a real positive and again, allows the inpatient's acute care to really focus on those most at need rather than focusing on those who people are just freaking out about. So I think there's also been a cultural shift, at least in the Chicagoland area, for many of the outpatient providers, school systems, and others who 10, 15 years ago would often now, what we would say is overreact to a non-suicidal self-injury. I think now what we're seeing is that people are reacting more appropriately. And even to the family level that you've been able to provide education, that families are now understanding a little bit better of how to respond. Yeah. I know some parents do worry that if their child is admitted to an inpatient program, then they might be exposed to more severe behaviors, including learning new ways to self-injure. And we touched a little bit on this already in making sure that war stories don't happen. But how do you address this or respond specifically to parents who are worried about this? Yeah, you know, again, I think that's where helping the parent to really understand what the inpatient unit is going to do. Just like we help them understand and define for them what we mean by keeping their child safe and how we are going to do that and understanding the complexities of that. I've had parents get upset at me, for instance, for doing an assessment of suicide on their kid. They're like, well, how could you? How could you ask them about suicide? They don't know anything about that. And you just planted that in their mind. And my response is, well, first off, they knew what I was talking about, you know, so I did not plant anything in their mind. But second off, we know there's lots and lots and lots of data to show that that actually reduces risk. Asking about suicide reduces risk for suicide. I often make this statement in, in my trainings, 
where, where I say, I've never run into a situation where I ask a kid about thoughts about suicide and they suddenly turn to me, pause and go, no, but now that you say it, right? <laughs> right? But now that you, now that I think about it, like that just doesn't happen, no. right? So that's a big part of the education of the parent is to help them to understand that when we are self-monitoring, when we're encouraging our kids to self-monitor, when we're providing them assessment and psychoeducation, we're not planting anything. There's no, there's no evidence to suggest that. On the other hand, it is a concern around social reinforcement. There is so there's totally social learning as it relates to non-suicidal self-injury. There are people who develop. I had a patient recently when I asked about you know when they started to first engage in non-suicidal self-injury and how they came about that. The patient said, you know, it's funny, but I had never heard about it. I just started to do it. Hadn't heard about it, hadn't read about it, nobody had taught this patient about that. They just started to do it. That happens. Mm-hmm. It also happens that people learn about it. They learn about it through friends. They learn about it online. They might see it in a movie or something like that. So there is social learning. For us to pretend like social learning doesn't exist is ludicrous. It does. For us to pretend that on, a, on an inpatient unit that there will be no social learning is also, I think, disingenuous. So I think we need to acknowledge that and then mm-hmm. explain to our parents that here are all the things that we do to reduce that risk. Mm-hmm. But it's a risk right? It's certainly a risk, but the risk is outweighed by the benefits. That's usually the way I approach it. I don't like to lie to parents. I like to be upfront and to be honest and to say it's possible, but here are all the things that we do to mitigate that risk. And here is why it's important for your child to be here regardless of that risk. That's a fair response for sure. Again, having that conversation at the start of treatment with both the individual who self-injures and a parent if they're involved in some way. So self-injury in inpatient settings. Before I ask my final questions about recommendations to parents, people with lived experience and professionals, is there anything else you'd like to share that we may have missed? I think the most important thing is that inpatient level of care has been largely neglected from a psychotherapeutic perspective. I don't think in many hospitals, for example, they're going to have one psychiatric unit. Some hospitals have no psychiatric unit and patients with psychiatric conditions are intermingled with medical conditions. And so I think, you know, in those kind of environments, it's even more important for this information to be shared and for staff to learn all of this. But because of all of that, because of the lack of psychological focus on inpatient units, I think we haven't done justice to this level of care. And again, I think that's where some of the benefit of my time at Alexian Brothers and my continued consultation with them has been useful because they really focused on that. They focused on the psychosocial treatment side of it, and they focused on integrating more cutting-edge treatments like Unified Protocol into it. Emotion regulation group therapy was integrated into our non-suicidal self-injury programs. In that sense, then, I really think that we need to reinvest in this level of care There's a lot more we can do from the psychotherapeutic side. Now, obviously, these are very short stays, at least on the inpatient side, partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient, a little bit longer. But I would like to see consistent threads in treatment. Too often, people get one type of treatment on an inpatient, they get a different part in a partial, and then it's completely different outpatient. I would like to see more consistency across all of these. So that's really something that I would like to see by the end of my career as well. Definitely some things for me to think about in our programs, because we have each of those, the inpatient partial hospitalization, as well as intensive outpatient. Finally, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend? You've recommended a lot already to parents, but what else might you recommend to parents? I think the more you can learn, the better. Yeah. The more you can empathize, the better. The more you can try to understand 
your child's behavior, the better. Kids often don't make sense to us in terms of why they do what they do. But when we actually take their development into consideration, their developmental level, when we take into consideration their emotional state, when we take into consideration their social situation, oftentimes we can fully understand what's going on with them. And oftentimes that understanding can then help us to empathize. It can help us to then figure out together with them collaboratively how to help them move forward, to be partners in that, even if that process maybe isn't moving as fast as you would like it to. No change is ever fast enough for a parent. I'm a parent of two kids. I can, I can say that for <laughs> sure. And so, but that said, the more that we can understand, the more that we can see life through their eyes and through their body and through their mind, the more that we can really be like, ah, I get it. I get it and I can help you. I don't have all the answers and I don't maybe even know what to do right now, but I'm going to be there with you and we're going to figure this out together. What that'll do is help the parent and help their child in particular to see them not as the enemy, to see them not as somebody who I have to hide this from or who I have to be concerned about them discovering something. The more transparency, the more communication, the better. And again, for parents, that means we have to withhold our judgment, mm. control our emotional reaction to our kids when they engage in behavior that we don't necessarily like or understand, and then really strive to understand it. And then also work with them to help them to think of different ways of doing things, alternatives. If we can do that, I think we will be leaps and bounds beyond where we normally are. Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to professionals, whether clinicians or researchers? Similar in the sense, let's learn. Let's learn. Learn about this more. I mean, non-suicidal self-injury, I got into this in 2006, and there was only a scant literature out there. It's now 2021. There's a lot more researchers, a lot more clinicians. We still know very little. We know a lot, <laughs> but we know very little. No, and I know that those two things combined together don't necessarily make sense, but for me, they do. There's still a lot for us to understand, particularly as it relates to how we treat this and particularly as it relates to how we treat this in particularly severe cases. I think we have a long way to go there. I would love researchers to get re-engaged at the acute level of care. I would love psychologists like myself to get re-engaged at the acute level of care. I do think there's certainly going to be a continued precedence of medical care at the inpatient level. That is probably a given just the way our health system is structured, but that doesn't mean that we can't have a significant contribution at the behavioral health side to really help folks to understand, help folks to know the best ways to treat non-suicidal self-injury at this level. And based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury? Keep talking, keep teaching us. I've talked a lot here about what people like me can do to teach others. Well, people with lived experience teach me a ton. It's one reason that I you know, maintain engagement at the clinical level is that I learn from my patients every time. And so for those with lived experience, I encourage you to become activists, to get involved, to help others in recovery, to really work towards creating communities that are supportive of those that struggle with non-suicidal self-injury and to really support those who are ready to think of alternatives, who are ready to start down that pathway and to help the rest of the world understand more about what it's truly like to look through your eyes.
Thank you, Dr. Washburn. My hope for today, really for listeners, especially those that work in hospital settings, to gain that empathy and compassion that I think you've really displayed throughout your responses here and how much you care about those who self-injure, but also those who work with them and being able to provide that education. Hence this podcast, yes, we're learning. There's a lot of knowledge that's out there. We're interviewing you, we're interviewing others, but we still have a lot to learn. So thank you for sharing with us, for teaching us based on your expertise and vast knowledge. So thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Westbrook. This was a pleasure and you know, I really appreciate this. And thanks to you and ISSS for doing this. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy. So if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. If you found this podcast helpful, please subscribe, give us a rating, and tell your friends. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters. For all things self-injury, follow ISSS on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.